So if you have your Bible, uh, Revelation chapter 14 is where we will be today, starting in those first five verses. Today's message is entitled, Tried, Tested, and Triumphant. In 2017, Hurricane Harvey slammed the Texas coast as a Category 4 storm. That storm blew winds of 130 miles an hour, and we are told it dumped over 60 inches of rain in some places. Harvey caused massive flooding to the city of Houston, and 107 people lost their lives in those rising waters. One of those who was displaced by the storm was a man named Jeremiah Richard, pictured there. As the floodwaters rose, Jeremiah and his son had to seek higher ground, and so they were forced to move to the second floor of their home. And then in a matter of hours, they were stranded on their rooftop, and there they waited for several hours to be rescued by a helicopter that finally spotted them, carried them away in a basket, and dropped them off at a rescue station. Well, the story of this young man, his testimony, Jeremiah Richard, went viral as he stepped off the helicopter. There waited a reporter from KTRK-TV in Houston. And there with his four-year-old son, a reporter asked Mr. Richard about his situation. And here's what this man said. He said, we lost the house, we lost the car, we lost our clothes, everything is gone. And then the reporter said, well, sir, what do you do now? Where do you go? And Jeremiah said, we don't know. And then he paused and smiled and added, but we are thankful and we can say that God is good. Now, that was a brief testimony, but it was powerful. There on national television with the world watching this man who had lost everything but the breath in his body and the clothes on his back, praised God. Reminded me of Job from the Old Testament who lost everything in a day and yet he stayed with God and he got a testimony after the trial and he was tried, tested, and triumphant. Reminds me of the song that the Gaithers sing, maybe you remember it, till the storm passes over. Till the thunder sounds no more, till the clouds roll forever from the sky. Hold me fast, let me stand in the hollow of thy hand. Keep me safe till the storm passes by. Now we have weathered through many dark and destructive chapters in the book of Revelation as the storm of the tribulation has ravaged planet earth. We come to chapter 14 and we see now the storm ceases for a moment and heavenly sunlight breaks through the clouds in the first five verses of this chapter we are going to be reacquainted with a group of believers who have survived the storm and now offer praise to God they are those 144,000 Jewish evangelists that we met earlier in chapter 7 of Revelation at the beginning of their ministry that is 12,000 selected from the 12 tribes of Israel by God, sealed, supernaturally, protected, and then sent out to go around the world during the tribulation, preaching the gospel to anyone who will listen, 
And they have come through now the darkest days of the tribulation. They have faced terrible persecution from the Antichrist. And now they too stand, as I would say, tried, tested, and triumphant. And as we study these unique servants of Christ, I think we're not only going to be encouraged, but we're also going to be challenged in our own lives. We'll be challenged in our faith and to stay faithful to the Lord. So there's four attributes that I notice about these 144,000. First, I want you to notice the standing of the 144,000. We read about this in verse 1. Notice what the Word of God says. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. Now, as John's vision unfolds here in chapter 14, the thing that strikes me is how different it is from the previous chapter, chapter 13. In fact, it may be important for you to see the comparison. As we open chapter 13, we see the Antichrist emerge, and that's the focus of that chapter. But as we open chapter 14, it's about the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. Chapter 13 is about the Antichrist counterfeit religion. Here we're going to see the true faith of believers who have persevered persecution. In chapter 13, we read about idolatry on the earth as people bowed and worshipped the Antichrist as a god. Here we see the true spiritual worship of God's people as they stand on Mount Zion. Chapter 13, we learned of the mark of the beast, 666, and now we see that the real mark is to have the Father's name as it is there imbued on those 144,000. And here we get a glimpse at the end of the tribulation period. As the 144,000 stand victoriously on Mount Zion with Christ. In fact, this is the first of seven visions that John gets in this chapter. And though these visions are not chronological in this chapter, they do give us a panoramic view of the entire end times period. Now I mentioned that they are standing there with the Lamb, who is Jesus Christ, standing on Mount Zion. If you know anything about the Old Testament prophets, you will soon understand that Mount Zion is Grand Central Station for the millennial reign of Christ. And you see, the Bible tells us that after the tribulation, there's going to be a thousand year period where Jesus will rule the entire planet from a throne his capital city will be Jerusalem, and His throne will be on Mount Zion. Now, if you know anything about the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 2, it talks about, in verses 2 through 4, the Mount Zion of this millennial kingdom. Verse 2 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, and they shall learn war anymore. And so you see here the parallel here in Isaiah 
chapter 2 and Revelation 14. Now you'll remember that when we first met these 144,000, they were sealed by God supernaturally. They were protected for their ministry. That happened in chapter 7 and verse 3. Now as we read this, we see in verse 1 that they had the name of their father's name written on their foreheads. They are still bearing that mark of God. Notice that they've been preserved through tribulation, which shows that God has been faithful to His promise. God has kept His word. He has not lost one of the 144,000. It's not 139,995. He's preserved them all. Not one hair was damaged upon their head. Not one was harmed. They made it through just as God said they would. I like what John Phillips wrote in his commentary about this group. He said this, quote, No other age has produced a company like this, a veritable army of militant believers marching unscathed through every form of danger. It has been theirs to defy the dragon, to bait the beast and face the false prophet. Their calling has been to preach the gospel from the housetops and even to name Christ from the most dreadful penalties. They have been surrounded, those latter-day Jobs, with impenetrable hedges, able to laugh to scorn all the grand inquisitors of hell. They have walked the streets in broad daylight, careless of the teeth-gnashing rage of their would-be torturers and assassins, true witnesses of Christ in the most terrible era in the history of mankind. And as I read that and study, something stirs in my heart and I say, God, I want to be faithful like that. God, I want to be bold like that. Lord, if I can only please You, if I can only bear Your name to this world and this generation, Lord, that would be a blessing. But as I notice this, friend, there is something that we have in common with these 144,000. They are sealed and they are secure in the Lord. And friend, do you know that if you are a born again child of God, you are sealed too? The Bible says in Ephesians 1.13, notice this. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. What a blessing it is to know God through the person of His Holy Spirit. The moment you believe is the moment you receive the Spirit of God. He's not just uh, wanting to be resident in your life. He wants to be president in your life. The question is, not how can I get more of the Spirit of God, but how can I let the Spirit of God have more of me? I like to make the illustration of registered mail. Have you ever sent or received a piece of registered mail? If you do that, the post office puts a seal on it and they guarantee that that letter, that correspondent, is going to make it to the place that it is designated. I like to think of the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit like that. If you have the Holy Spirit, it's guaranteed delivery for the child of God. Except the church's delivery to heaven is more sure than even registered mail. God is the one who sends us on our way to heaven. God is the one who keeps us, who preserves us. The Holy Spirit is the one who guides us and guards us. All who have the Spirit of God, who have been redeemed by the Son of God, who belong to Father God, we are saved, sealed, and secure. Like those 144,000, friend, I think about their stand as they are there victorious with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Friend, I'm 
glad that I can say that I stand with my God. There's a lot of folks in this world, the media and the powers that be, who want the Christians to sit down, shut up, and just go to church and don't let their beliefs influence anything. Well, I'm sorry, but I can't do that because my Lord called me to be salt and light. And friend, I'm standing on the Word of God. We need Christians today who will stand on the Word of God, who will stand for their church, who will stand for their family, and believe the things of God no matter what the world says or no matter what they threaten us with. We must say, I'm proud, I'm loud, Jesus is my Savior, He made the difference in my life, and I can't be quiet about it. Friend, who are you standing for today? Who are you standing with today? Oh, these 144,000, they are grateful at that moment that they stood with their God. And friend, you'll be glad, child of God, when you make your stand with Jesus Christ on the plains of Megiddo and He slays all of His enemies. Friend, you'll be glad when you're standing with your God and your Savior on a redeemed planet earth. You'll be glad that you trusted in Jesus Christ when you're standing on streets of gold singing new songs that no ear has ever heard before. You see, if you have God and the Holy Spirit, it's a seal of guarantee from God. God said you're going to make it. And so the standing of the 144,000. Then I notice also in verses 2 and 3, the singing of the 144,000. Notice this, verse 2 and 3. He said, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. <laughs> Here it is. And they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now as we've studied the book of Revelation, you may have been surprised to learn how much praise and worship is in this book. Yes, there's a lot of judgment, there's a lot of darkness, there's a lot of wrath, but friend, there's a lot of church happening in between. And we see it here in these verses as the 144,000 break out in praise and adoration to the King. Thus far we've seen the four living creatures and the 24 elders praising God around the throne. That was in chapter 5. Then we heard the myriads of angels join in the chorus as they praised the Lamb. That was also in chapter 5. Then when we got to chapter 7, we heard the tribulation martyrs. They added their song to heaven's chorus. And now, as we study this, I understand one thing, friend, that this is the quietest world we're ever going to live in. If you don't like praise and worship, if you don't like loud singing, if you don't like giving glory and honor to Jesus Christ, you won't like this worship service, friend. Because in, in heaven it's going to be all about Jesus. It's going to be all about the Lamb of God. All about the One who was slain for your sins and mine, but was risen on the third day. Now they, these 144,000, they stand with Christ on Mount Zion. And the Bible tells us that they sing a new song. A song that had never been sung before. It will be a song that only they can sing as it will be drawn from their experiences of preaching the gospel during that tribulation time and having God's mighty protecting hand over them from every attack of the Antichrist. 
it's difficult to imagine the persecution they face. Difficult to think about how many times God would have spared their life. But I know this thing, it's going to make for a real song, isn't it? You imagine a, a choir that big breaking out in song? John said it sounded like a roar of many waters. You just thought Niagara Falls was loud. You know, some of the greatest hymns that we have in the church, you know when they were written? They were written in the valley. Some of the greatest songs that we love today, that we adore and that are precious to us, are songs that were forged in the fires of affliction. I say it all the time, you hear me say it, everybody wants the testimony, but they don't want to go through the test. You see, in order to get the testimony, in order to get the song, sometimes you have to shed a few tears along the way. It is well, that was written by Horatio Spafford after he learned of his daughter's drowning at sea. Charlotte Elliott, she wrote, Just as I am from a bed of suffering, as she was paralyzed from the waist down. Joseph Scriven, who wrote, What a friend we have in Jesus. He wrote that after he learned of the death of his fiancée, and he just then received news that his mother was on her deathbed, and he wouldn't have time to make the journey to see her. And so we see here that these 144,000 are going to have an incredible song. And friend, I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> you know what? Some of the best times of church and praise and worship that you'll have in your Christian life won't take place in these four walls. I'm telling you, God's Spirit can meet you where you are. Some of the sweetest times of worship that I've had in my life has been riding down the road. And friend, the Holy Spirit can just get in there in the passenger seat and sit right down beside you and bless you just like you were sitting on the front row of church. Let me tell you, the Holy Ghost came inside my car the other day. Friend, I was riding down the road and the words of a song came on my radio that I hadn't heard in a long time. Let the blood of Calvary speak for me. In a world full of conflict, there's peace to be found. Rest calmly and securely, though troubles all around. When the storm passes by, I shall have the victory. I'll let the blood of Calvary speak for me. And friend, it was getting really thick and rich in my car. And I just happened to be sitting at the intersection. I was singing and praising the Lord. I had Holy Ghost goosebumps. And the person in the car beside me was looking over, looking at me and saying, I wonder what got a hold of that guy. And I thought, man, you need to get a double portion of this Holy Ghost. Friend, you can have that same joy. You can attract more flies with honey than you can with vinegar. Some of you act like you've been baptized in lemon juice, but I'm telling you, I'm glad I've got a Savior to sing about. I'm glad I've got a gospel that gives me hope and joy in the morning. Friend, I'm glad that I can get in my car, roll down the road, roll down the windows, and let the praises sing out because Jesus is right there with me. The 144,000 singing. What a blessing, friend. Then we see here the separation of the 144,000. Now that you got happy, I'm going to step on your toes. <laughs> Look at what the 144,000 said about them. Verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves, and these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. 
Now think of this, friend. In the middle of this darkness and decay of the tribulation, there are the 144,000 being light in a dark place and salt in a decaying place. These holy men of God, the Bible says, are separated from the world. They are sexually pure. They're committed to the truth. No guile, no deceit is found in their mouth. Just think about how they're going to stick out like sore thumbs. Just think about how if a child of God is really living for God, he ought to stick out in the world. The Bible says that sin and immorality are going to reign during this tribulation period. It's going to be like a busted sewage pipe, just moral iniquity and and sin abounding in the world. But these 144,000 are going to stand strong for their God. They're going to swim against the stream of the culture and be examples of righteousness. And just their very presence in the world is going to reveal the moral bankruptcy of sinners all around them. Can you imagine if the child of God, if the church-going Christian were to remain pure in just these two areas that the Bible talks about in the lives of these 144,000? If they had pure sexuality and pure speech, what a difference the church could make in the world today. You know one of the reasons why the unbelieving world doesn't want to have anything to do with the church is because, friend, they see how the so-called Christians live the other six days of the week at work and at school. And, friend, it's not that much different Whatever happened to preaching holiness in the Christian life? Listen to me. My Bible says that my God is holy. And He hasn't changed. Be ye holy for I am holy. And yet we've got preachers today who are saying, oh, it's okay if you want to go out and have you a drink with your buddy. Well, I even have read churches where they're partnering with breweries. Oh, we'll just have... A little bit of Bible and a little bit of beer together. Friend, light and darkness doesn't mix. What about the church today that's preaching the acceptance and the ordaining of gay clergy? What about this easy believism, this prosperity message that just has inundated America where it says, oh, you don't have to change. God just, he, he, he just will accept you as you are. There's no message of repentance, no message of holiness, no message of striving after purity in the Christian life. And friend, we need to get back to the basics, the ABCs, admit, believe, confess, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need you in my life every day. And you ought to be keeping those short accounts with God. 2016, the Barna Research Group released some findings in a study that was called the porn phenomenon. Listen to these statistics. They surveyed pastors, not deacons, not Sunday school teachers or just church members, pastors. And they said that 64% of youth pastors and 57% of pastors struggled with pornography currently or in the past. And we wonder... Why? There's no power coming out of our pulpits. Because the so-called men of God aren't living it like they should. 54% of pastors said they currently struggled with porn and live, quote-unquote, in constant fear of being discovered. 
Let me tell you something, friend. If I couldn't walk this, if I couldn't uh, have uh, some kind of consistency in my life, I am afraid of a holy God who would strike me dead. And if I can't keep this word, I ought to be getting out of the ministry. If I can't walk in purity and holiness as God has called me to be, friend, maybe I need to go sell cars or sell insurance or dig a ditch because this is holy work. This is sacred work. We're dealing with the souls of men and women. Who cares about being discovered by your church? The holy, righteous God already knows about it. That's the one whom we have to deal with. One of the marks of a true Christian is a desire to live a pure and Christ-honoring life. I'm not talking about being a holy roller. I'm not talking about having a long list of do's and don'ts. I'm just talking about pursuing Jesus. You know, if you pursue Jesus and you understand His loveliness and His beauty and His worth, the things of the world will grow strangely dim. You won't want to go back to the old stuff because the old stuff isn't as good and as beautiful and as awesome as walking with Jesus is. Listen to what 1 Peter 1, 13 and 16 tells us. This is the standard that we're to live by. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. And set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who has called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I know what you're saying. Pastor, that sounds like a message from 50 years ago. How about further back? How about 2,000 years ago? God hasn't changed. His holy standards for us today hasn't changed. And if we don't have something different to offer the world, then all that we can offer them is gimmicks and programs and a religious country club. But I'm talking about offering them Jesus. And when Jesus gets in your heart and in your life... Things will get cleaned up. Things that were once tantalizing and tempting to you won't hold a candle anymore. You know, we have a, an old glass door, storm door, at our house. And uh, you want to talk about an exercise in futility. <laughs> trying to keep that door clean. Because... The good news about that door is it's fully glass and it lets lots of wonderful light into our living room. But the bad news about that door, like I said, is it's impossible to keep clean, especially when you have two little children and soon to be another one. And you have neighborhood kids who coming in and out and they leave grubby, muddy, nasty fingerprints all over that door. In fact, I went out this morning and did the best I could to clean it. I can clean that storm door and come back Clifford just a few hours later. It looks like I hadn't even done anything. <laughs> There's all those nasty, muddy fingerprints. I looked over there one day and Abigail was going, just licking it for whatever reason. The point is, I have to constantly stay diligent about keeping that thing clean. You know, I think about that in terms of our personal holiness as well. We might say, well, I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. Especially when we start comparing ourselves to Joe Blow down the street. But listen, the standard isn't what our culture says is acceptable. The standard is this. The standard is 
the Word of God. And the Word of God will always be higher than what the world says. And I'm telling you, when God's sunlight, when God's holiness begins to shine into your life, you know what it's going to do? It's going to expose a lot of the dirt and the fingerprints and the smudges and the sin. And if you're going to live a holy life, if you're going to live a pure life, what does that mean? You're going to have to have short accounts with God. You're going to have to go to Him daily for cleansing in and out. Now let's wrap up number four, and I want you to see the surrender. Verse four is what catches my attention as I finish today. Watch this, this little phrase. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They've been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. And so these servants are totally committed to Christ in every area of their life. They are willing to go wherever He leads. The jungles of Africa, the mountains of the Himalayas, they are willing to face any hardship, persecution, or hunger, or loneliness. They are willing to pay any cost to be penniless preachers so that they can fulfill their mission. The Bible says that they are the first fruits. What does that mean? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament there was a festival that they had every year called the Feast of First Fruits. And a farmer would go out to his field. He would cut a sheaf of barley and he would wave it before the Lord as an offering. It was the first and it was the best of his crop. And it was a recognition as he waved that, that God was the giver of all the blessings and that God owned the land. And those first few fruits marked the beginning of the harvest season. And it was a celebration in anticipation of the greater harvest that was going to come in later on in the year. And so, when the Bible compares these 144,000 to first fruits, it's saying that they're the first ones to come through the tribulation, but a small portion of just all of the numberless throngs that are going to come to Christ through their ministry and through their preaching. Listen to what David Jeremiah said about them. He said the 144,000 sealed Jewish evangelists will be privileged to lead history's greatest revival. They will be empowered to preach the gospel and the result will be a revival like the world has never seen. Helped by the impact of the two witnesses of Revelation 11 and the sobering effects of international calamities, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists will cover the globe with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Millions upon millions will be saved and this evangelistic enterprise will fulfill the words of Jesus in His Olivet Discourse and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end shall come. And friend, that's our mission as well. That's not just for them, that's for the church as well. Go and do all creation proclaiming the gospel. And I'm glad that I belong to a church and I get to pastor a church that believes in reaching the community. And praise God, when we looked out on Tuesday night and we had 72 children running around in our family life center. Friend, I'm telling you, it's a blessing when you can hear those little voices laughing. When you can see them running around. Yeah, they make a mess. And yes, it gets dirty, but that stuff can be cleaned up. And friend, I'm excited about a church that wants to make an impact and make a difference in the lives of young people because young people are not 100% of our population, but they are 100% of our future. 
And we have this time, this uh, resources, this church and our energy to reach another generation. So that if the Lord tarries another 120 years, Liberty Baptist Church will still be shining bright here atop Monte Vista's hill. Two centuries ago, there was a brave band of souls who became known as one-way missionaries. And what that meant is they bought tickets to the mission field without the return half. Instead of suitcases, what they did is they packed coffins. They took all their earthly belongings and they put them into a pine box. And as they sailed away, they said goodbye to their friends and their family because they knew that they wouldn't be coming back home. One of these so-called one-way missionaries was a fellow named A.W. Milne. He set sail for the South Pacific. Went to one of the most dangerous islands at that time where there were headhunters and cannibals. His coffin was packed. He went to start a ministry there, started preaching. Was there for 35 years in this little remote outcropping there in the Pacific. Just one man doing the Lord's work. He made an impact. He died. They buried him in the middle of the village. And here's what his tombstone said. When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. Isn't that a great thing for you and I to, to strive for in our lives? Where you go to your school, you go to your job, you go to your neighborhood. Oh, and there's darkness all around. But friend, you can make an impact where you are and make it to where there's just a little bit more brightness there. That's the dawning challenge of our witness in this world today. Yes, I hear all of the things that the culture says about us, that the church is dying, that people don't want to hear gospel preaching anymore, that we just need to change and adapt to the culture. But friend, we have a mission, we have a gospel, and we have a Savior that is glorious and powerful and worthy to have His name spread to every corner of this planet. And I want it to be said of Derek McCarson as it is said of these witnesses in the end times. He goes wherever the Lamb leads him. And if we do that, friend, I'm sure that this little corner of the world will be a little bit brighter than when we found it. And so that's the challenges that we face today. To be standing on God's Word. To be singing God's praises. To be separated to God's purity. And to be surrendered to God's purposes.